I'm Dr. Leif Tapanilla from the Idaho Museum of Natural History, and I'm here with Peter Pruitt from Zoo Idaho, and this is The Nature of Idaho. Coming to you from the 1B, Bannock County that is, we're talking all about Idaho, its wild places and wild faces, the natural setting that makes Idaho an incredible place to live and be proud of. Today our guest is Chuck Smith. He's owner of Fly Sun Valley here in Sun Valley, where they take people paragliding. Peter, we're talking paragliding. Have you been? No, I haven't parachuted. I haven't done anything. I've jumped off a cliff into water that's about 20 feet tall. That's the max. That sounds about as much as I've done, too. So we're going to learn a lot today. All right. Well, before we get there, nature news. What you got? Yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about our brain and our and, brain and how it works. Leaf, <laughs> if it, it works, if it works, okay. sometimes it does, sometimes <laughs> it doesn't. If you're wondering, Leaf, if you pre-plan an art heist instead of the good old-fashioned spur-of-the-moment heist, you're actually better at remembering the paintings that you saw and the values of those paintings. Oh boy, there's a lot to digest right, in that one. Right. So basically, pre-plan your heist. Pre-plan okay. your heist, guys. Um, basically, this is some research coming out of the Duke Institute for Brain Sciences, and what they're saying is curious exploration for a future goal is a better motivating factor to remembering than an urgent, immediate goal-seeking motivator. Right. So if you kind of if you are planning something out, it, it helps you improve your memory. And what this uh, research did is they uh, recruited 420 adults, and these adults were playing a computer game, and they were put into two random groups. One, a master art thief who are planning a heist, and then master art thieves who are doing an art heist right now. Okay. And in the game, they had different colored doors, and you had to open these doors, and you saw paintings and the value of the paintings. And then at the end, they waited for a day and then brought the same groups back and gave them a pop quiz. And you were supposed to see if you could go to these doors that you opened the day before and if you remembered certain paintings and the value of those paintings. And what they found out is that the ones who were pre-planning the heist, they had a better memory of where the paintings were and the value of the paintings. However, the ones who did the uh, spur-of-the-moment heist, they actually found more valuable paintings than the pre-planners because their skill was involved in looking exactly for the highest valued paintings. And so they actually stole more valuable paintings and got away with more money. Because their focus was just on the value just on rather the value. than the bigger picture. Rather than the bigger Literally. picture. Yeah they, yeah, they didn't really remember the types of paintings, but they knew which ones were the most valuable. Interesting conditioning. Okay. Yeah. And so when you put this in a, in a, a real life situation, right? you know, you, you look at... Um, High stress moments. For instance, we live near Yellowstone, and if you're trying to get a selfie with a bull bison, and that bull bison chooses not to be in the selfie, you know that's a high stress moment, and you react accordingly. But if you want to do a prolonged, say, life changing moment, you know if I want to eat better and move more towards larger amounts of vegetables, and I kind of pre plan that and work through it. 
that life change tends to stay with you a lot longer than if all of a sudden I decided one day that I want to be a vegetarian. Interesting. Yeah. When we, uh, when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about paragliding. Our trivia question today is when did paragliding become a sport? Well, if you don't know anything about paragliding, like I know nothing about paragliding, Peter, you know nothing about paragliding. No. We're going to learn a whole ton today. This is going to be fun. When we come back from the break, Chuck Smith from Fly Sun Valley is going to join us. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Here at NPR, we try to reach all kinds of listeners. My name is Leo, and I'm eight years old. And we take feedback very seriously. I never hear much about nature or dinosaurs or things like that. So when Leo wrote us about our appalling lack of dinosaur coverage on All Things Considered, we knew we had to talk to him. Hi, Leo. Hi. I hear from your parents that you want to be a paleontologist when you grow up, and now we've got one on the line for you. Okay. <laughs> let me let you ask a question. How did dinosaurs grow to be so big? This is hard-hitting journalism because these are the types of questions that keep paleontologists up at night. In public radio, we value our relationship with each and every one of our listeners. You listen to us, and we listen to you too. So keep our connection strong. Donate to this station right now. Here's how. You know who covers dinosaurs really well? The Nature of Idaho on KISU. Support NPR and KISU programs by visiting KISU.org and click donate. Hey, welcome back from the break. I want to welcome our guest today, Chuck Smith, to the show. He's the owner of Fly Sun Valley, and we're going to talk all about paragliding today. So first off, thanks for joining us today on The Nature of Idaho. Well, thanks for having me join you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. I'm the owner and operator of Fly Sun Valley here in Sun Valley, Ketchum, Idaho. We're the uh, Forest Service permittee for the paragliding uh, concession here on the ski resort. We've been here about 23, 24 years. You know, I first came to Sun Valley in the early 90s to uh, fly here in the competition. And that's how I first discovered Sun Valley. Didn't know anything about it. And uh, actually started the first paragliding commercial operation here in the mid-90s. But then I went back to Aspen, and um, by the time we got the permits here, I was already a partner in business in Aspen. And I don't know, the story goes on from there, but long story short, I came back. <laughs> and here we are. So we have to ask, first, what is paragliding? And then how does it differ from hang gliding? A paraglider the inanimate object paraglider it's a ram air wing it's an airfoil just like an airplane wing it doesn't have a frame it gets its rigidity from the internal air that's in the in the wing that creates the, the firmness in the wing it's made out of zero porosity types of nylon ripstop nylons mylars things like that so to the layperson, it looks like a modern parachute, but it's actually quite different. The materials are different. It's designed for totally different purposes. Compared to a hang glider, the hang glider does have a frame to it. And another big difference that I want to make sure people understand, it's not parasailing. You get that all the time. Parasailing is when you're being towed behind a boat with a, with a conical uh, type of parachute. And you're just being drugged around the sky. So the aerodynamically were totally different from you. Know, technically, though, we are a, a paraglider is a type of hang glider. It's considered a class three hang glider, but it just, like I said, doesn't have a frame to it. 
So and that's an advantage and disadvantage, you know, depending on how you look at it. The main advantage with paragliding compared to hang gliding is you can break down a paraglider. It's no bigger than a, than a backpack. You can sit in the chair next to you, you know, the seat in your car, the trunk of your car. If you want to fly to Europe and go on a flying holiday or Australia or anywhere you go, you just check it into your luggage and go. And then you have your flying machine with you wherever you go. That's pretty difficult with a hang glider. A lot of airlines don't want to transport <laughs> and it's expensive. If I'm on the ground and a paraglider, the person with the inanimate object, the paraglider, is in the air above me, what shape does it have? Is it is it a wedge shape, triangle shape? Is it a big rectangle? What am I looking at? The first paragliders were very rectangular. Pretty short time of discovery because most of your lifting forces on the airfoil are from mid-span to mid-span. So it's in kind of the center area of the wing. And out towards the wingtips, you're not getting nearly as much lift generated out there. By tapering those wingtips, you're reducing your parasitic drag and increasing the performance of that airfoil. So paragliders quickly went to what you would call, technically, we'd call it lenticular. So it's um, if you've seen lenticular clouds in the sky, those are those disc-shaped clouds really up high, and they're usually stationary. That's kind of what a paraglider is shaped like. How do you steer the paraglide? Similar to a hang glider, you do some of the, because most of your steering with a hang glider is by weight shift, changing your center of gravity. We do that as well. We lean in the direction we want to go. Majority of your, of your control comes from your hands are with the control toggles, and now that control toggles connect to your, your brake lines but they're more than brakes and they connect to the trailing edge of the airfoil in the rear part and they act like ailerons or flaps. So if we want to turn right, you pull down on the right side, that causes drag, slows that side of the wing down and then the wing pivots around that slower side. But you get something called adverse roll. So when apply brake on that one side, even though the glider wants to turn that direction, it's rolling the opposite direction because you're creating lift on the side that you just applied brake to. So that's why you lean in the direction you want to go to counteract that adverse roll. That leaning um, process basically replaces a rudder. So we don't have a rudder. So that's how you coordinate your turn. With an airplane, you use your rudder and your ailerons. And here we're using our body to lean to coordinate that turn. So it's more efficient. So how tight can you make these turns and what kind of areas can you work your way into as you're flying? The paraglider, we're pretty much the slowest, smallest thing that a human flies on. That's an airfoil. We're certainly one of the slowest things in the sky. You know, the only thing that's slower is a hot air balloon. But you're not flying because the principles of an airfoil aren't being used when you're flying on a hot air balloon. You're, you're floating. And so because we are pretty slow, which is a disadvantage many times when the wind picks up, but it's also an advantage because of that slower speed, we can usually turn our aircraft a lot tighter than compared to other aircraft. We can land in smaller landing areas compared to other aircraft. You can stuff these in a pretty small area if you've got a good pilot and if the conditions are conducive to it. Uh, okay, so we've talked about once you're in the air, but how do you get in the air to begin with? Good question. So the most common way, you can tow these, 
tow launch paragliders. You can also operate with a paramotor with an engine. But uh, most commonly, when you're talking about foot launch paragliding, we're going to launch off a slope. You're looking for a slope that's facing into the wind, and you lay the glider out on its on its back, on its top surface, basically uphill from where you're standing, and you start moving forward down the slope. And as you do that, you're pulling on the lines that are connected to the leading edge of the airfoil, and that brings the glider up off the ground. And that motion of you moving forward, particularly if there's some wind, then now you're forcing air, ramming air, into that airfoil. So it takes its shape, arcs up over your head, you continue to run, and once you have generated enough airspeed over that airfoil, it creates lift, and off you go. So the more wind you have, the less running involved up to a point. I mean, there's a point where there's too much wind. You don't want to be flying. You know, you can literally pull the glider up and not have to run at all. Sounds a little like if I'm pulling a kite or something behind me. Is it it kind of, it's the same idea? Pretty similar, but it's all about getting that. It's one of the unique things about paragliding is that when we're about to launch our aircraft, we don't have an aircraft yet. It's a sniveling bag of knife on one. So as you're launching your aircraft, you're building your aircraft simultaneously and then getting it into the flying position over your head. A good pilot will make a launch look very easy. So who is the person who goes, I've got this idea and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put this parachute on my back. I'm going to run. And then I'm going to be able to fly around and do all kinds of cool stuff. And with that, who's the person or how the person go, let's go to Idaho and try this out. (laughs) All over the West, there's great flying sites. All over the country, all over the world, there's good flying. What Idaho offers for flying here, it's just, it's one of the many things uh, you guys know as Idahoans. I mean, the rafting, the climbing. There's so many outdoor possibilities in Idaho. And paragliding is one of the great ones here. One of the finest places in North America to fly, if not the world. Several reasons for that. We got people that travel from all over to come here to fly. I hosted the national championships here in 2010. And that was focused towards American U.S. pilots. We had the nationals here again in 2000. No, it was 2006. Then we had in 2010. And then in 2012, we had actually one of the paragliding world cups here. And that brought in a lot of international pilots, mostly European, some South American, so on. But the Europeans pretty much lead the way, I'd say. If you had generalized things and competition and so on like that, the Europeans had a little bit of jump on everybody else when they started flying and just... Yeah, they tend to be some of the best pilots in the world. So you get airborne. You've, you've uh, yeah. taken a, a short run down the slope. Now there's air under your feet. Two questions. So can you, can you keep gaining elevation once you lift off? Can you actually go up? And then how long is a typical ride? Like how long yeah. can you sustain being airborne? Those are great questions. So the amount of time that you're in the air varies with the amount of lift. So we're a glider, we're non-motorized. You know, we get our forward speed basically from gravity. And you know, a gliding airfoil basically converts the downward force of gravity into some sort of horizontal movement and travel. 
but it can't ever be totally horizontal. It's going to have a, a downward angle to it. You know, our glide ratios right now, if we're getting paragliders, are anywhere from eight, nine, 10 to one glide ratios, which means for like every 10 units of measurement, we move forward, we drop one. And so to gain altitude or maintain altitude, we need to be in air that's rising at equal or greater than the rate that we're sinking. That's why, at least here in the mountains, I mean, the flying that we do here is a little bit different than the coastal sites. There you're, you're soaring along coastal bluffs and so on usually, and there's no thermal activity involved generally. And you're riding a wave, and it's called orographic lift or ridge lift, where the wind hits an object and flows around it and over it. And we're surfing that, that vertical movement in the air going over the object. Most of the time we do here in the mountains, we're flying thermals. The sun heats the ground, the ground radiates heat, that heats the air that's in contact with the ground. And then if you have an unstable air mass, that air mass, that warmer air wants to rise because it's less dense. And it comes in columns and bubbles. That's why anybody, if you look around and you ever see a bird circling without flapping its wings, it's usually in a thermal. That bird is doing the same thing that we do. We find a thermal like that and we turn to stay in it. And it's Mother Nature's free express elevator. You know, and they come in all sizes and shapes and particularly strengths. And sometimes you're just in, you're in a thermal that's going to maintain you. Sometimes it's going to take you up a couple hundred feet a minute. Sometimes you get hit a thermal that's going up a couple thousand feet a minute. That's quite strong. <laughs> but, uh, so that's how we gain altitude, particularly in the mountains. Our ceiling's 18,000 feet. If we're going to fly above 18,000, we have to get permission. That's a different category of airspace. Any aircraft flying above 18,000 feet could be flying IFR, instrument flight rules. So they don't have to be looking out the window. They could be sitting there reading the paper flying. And we don't have a, a transponder like many other aircraft. So we have to stay VFR, visual flight rules, and always be looking around. Ending up as a hood ornament on a 757 or something. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, end up in LA or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. What? <laughs> Bad interface. So, but, um, so yeah. So with the tandems that we do here, you know, we cater them as much as we can to the person. You know, early in the morning when we go, uh, those flights tend to be about fifteen minutes, maybe a little bit longer, because the vertical difference from the top of the mountain, Bald Mountain, down to the bottom is about thirty-two hundred vertical feet. So just to glide through that amount of altitude is uh, takes about 15 minutes when there's no lift. And then later in the morning, when we start to get some sun or greater chance of getting some more lift, then we can stretch the flights out 20, 25 minutes, sometimes even longer. Usually for most people, 20, 25 minutes, 30 minutes is plenty to be up there. It's quite a long time. You want to keep you in the air, you know, because... If we go down to land, I got to go to the office and do paperwork. I don't do that. <laughs> we fly because we love flying. So, but you know, we don't take the tandems higher usually than twelve or thirteen thousand feet because the top of the mountain's nine thousand. If we do get a really good day where we can fly and soar and get up high, we don't want to take people much higher than that because oxygen. I mean, when we fly solo and doing cross-country flying and things like that, you're at altitude all day, you 
we fly with an oxygen system, but we don't want to take people up too high, particularly people that are visiting from sea level. We don't want to get them hypoxic. How many flights would you say you average in a day, on a good day? Well, yeah, <laughs> it depends. I mean, this summer has been kind of tough. It's been a tough for a lot of paragliding companies around the country. Just thing that swings and economic things going on. But I mean, on a busy day here, I mean, it's myself and my crew of pilots. You know, we've got a great team, really gifted pilots. And you know, it's probably about five or six of us when we're fully staffed. And we can each get in a couple flights each, maybe three, if we're really lucky. But generally, we're flying here just in the mornings. And we can do two or three rounds in the mornings. And occasionally, we'll do also evenings. The evenings are beautiful flying here. They have the highest, by far the highest frequency of being canceled due to poor weather, you know, thunderstorms or high winds and things like that. So, but if you're a solo pilot going up on the mountain here to fly, you're hoping just to do one big long flight. If you're going to do a cross country type of thing, you're going to be up there all day and flying hundreds of miles. What can uh, visitors expect, you know, when they, when they come, you know, I assume many of them are this is probably their first time paragliding. Uh, what kind of protocols and, and safety things do they expect to go through? Yeah, I mean, everything that we need to tell the customer is pretty basic. We just need you to run a few steps with us and obey our commands. You know, we're all certified anywhere from one to three different gliding associations. I don't want to jinx it, knock on wood, but we've had a perfect safety record here in the 23, 24 years we've been here. Never get complacent. We're always a bit more conservative while flying with customers compared to maybe what we might do when we're up there by ourselves. It's kind of like if you're on a motorcycle, you know, I might do something a little bit crazier than I would if I had a passenger on the back with me. So it's similar because that's our responsibility. Take care of people. And um, we just need you to do a few things and we'll take care of the rest. But even if you can't run, it's not an endurance event. It's a sprint. You know, we just need you to be supporting your weight and sprinting a little bit. But even if you can't, if we know ahead of time we can make we can make provisions to accommodate somebody like that. We have a buggy that we uh, fly with you know, people that are uh, disabled, whether it's paraplegics, quadriplegics. We've had a whole plethora of people. And those are really special flights. You know, I've had people with ALS and Parkinson's and they still get the, the joy of flying. And, I do uh, have to ask one question before we get to the trivia. When you do these big cross country flights and you're talking hundreds of miles, how do you eat lunch? <laughs> yeah. Most pilots, if you saw somebody on the mountain here launching or preparing to launch for one of these long cross country flights, you know, they just don't just come along. You predict the, the day coming up usually several days ahead of time they're going to look like they're dressed for everest you're going to have down jacket on you're going to have a cannula in your nose you know, with the oxygen system um you're going to bring a bivy bag usually uh a camelback with a lot of water because at altitude it's quite dry so you're drinking through the day um there's power bars some sort of food to chew on but you want to have some food with you that if you do land out somewhere you may have a day hike out from, I mean, that's, it's, you know, as you know, I, there's 
really some remote parts of Idaho that you can end up in. Male pilots, we usually fly with a condom catheter, so you can urinate during the day. So yeah, it's um, it's like preparing for deep sea diving. <laughs> <laughs> so you have all that stuff on, particularly the warm clothing, because it's you know, you're going to be up spending your entire day at 15, 16,000 feet or more, and it's cold. When you get dressed to launch, you want to make sure that you launch as quickly as you can because you're going to just be sweltering there on the ground with all that gear on. That's fascinating. Yeah, it, it sounds like a, a, a fun thing to do, and, and I guess Sun Valley, we know where to go. Yeah, it's this pretty phenomenal place to fly. We've had the the distance rec North American distance record here off of Baldy for about twenty years. Because it got broke and rebroke always here. By you know, there's some phenomenal local pilots that live here, Gavin McClurg and Matt Beechner and Nate Scales, all these guys that have set the records here before. The last record was about six years ago, maybe seven years ago. I can't quite recall. Gavin McClurg had set that in it's 240 miles open distance from here. He landed out east of Helena, and uh, he could have kept going, but there was a, it couldn't continue to fly away from here because there was a storm in the way. So he had to land. But, uh, that, so that record stood for about six, seven years until about two years ago, and uh, a guy down in Texas put launched off a hill and set the new foot launched record, which I think is 325 miles, maybe. I have to look it up. Jeez. But then a year later, that same guy did a tow launch down in Texas, and now he, he has the world record for um, open distance on a paraglider, which is about 385 miles. That's a lot of time in the air. <laughs> it's a whole day. I'm thinking it's a lot of time in a car. <laughs> yes. Well, it's, like, it's funny you bring up like, Gavin. You know, it took him seven hours, which is quite fast to go that 240 miles. He was surfing a cold front. But to go get him and bring him back, <laughs> driving was 840 miles. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Well, I, I want to thank you for talking about paragliding. Can you help us with the trivia question we started off with? When did paragliding become a sport? It's a little bit subjective. The British were doing some parascending. There was this gentleman, Dave Barish, who was making these tri-lobe single-surface gliders running down slopes, ski slopes in New York, I think in Mount Hunter in New York. He had Francis Regalo designing hang gliders for the Regalo wings back in the 70s. For me, I, I looked towards the French. They were this, these three Frenchmen back in the late 70s that were running down slopes. They were skydivers and they were taking their skydiving rigs, running down slopes, literally tumbling <laughs> as they're trying to get airborne. You can find some of this video on, on <laughs> YouTube. You know, the one of the guys, his name was Gerard Besson. And uh, we'd fly together we, until he passed away a couple of years ago. We'd fly together every year in uh, West Africa. Uh, but it really, when it became recognized, I think, as a sport and not just kind of just crazy people doing nutty things, it's probably in Europe around 1985, 86, 
It was right around 86, 87 when it started getting recognized as a sport here in the U.S. You know, like I said before, it's kind of got its root in the climbing community. Yeah, you spend spend a whole day going up. You don't want to yeah. spend half the day going down. So yeah, yeah, you can fly down, be at base camp in a matter of minutes, and right. have a beer and some good food. Yeah, yeah. awesome, Chuck. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. And guys, it's just over there in Sun Valley. And to learn more about uh, paragliding and Chuck, you know, just visit flysunvalley.com and you know maybe book yourself a tandem flight. The Nature of Idaho receives support from listener contributions to KISU-FM. Shows are produced at Idaho State University with editing and production by Jamin Anderson and Diana Perez. Music is by Idaho's very own Sons of Bannock. Audio of this and all past episodes of The Nature of Idaho can be found at KISU.org from Spotify and other select podcast services. Send your thoughts and suggestions to noidkisu at isu.edu.